Last week, if you remember, we took a little side trip into Chronicles as we set up the reign of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did a lot of things to turn the nation back to God, and we saw a lot of the things that he did. Well, we're going to continue in the reign of Hezekiah today, because we now we have that stage set from last week. We're going to continue in 2 Kings 18, and we're going to start with verse 9. And verse 9 to 12 is really a summarization of what had happened previously, mainly with the southern kingdom, or the northern kingdom of Israel. It says, in the fourth king, or the fourth year of King Hezekiah, who was the seventh year of Hosea, king of Elah, or son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmanzer, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. So it took him three years in sieging the city of Samaria. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. Because they, why? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So that's just a summarization of what took place. Now we're going to go to the next step we're back in the southern, or southern kingdom of Judah, and we're going to be talking about what Hezekiah did next. And we have Hezekiah's attempt to pacify the Assyrians, starting in verse 13. And in the 14th year of Hezekiah, so he'd been reigning for, thir- or for 13 years, in the 14th year, Sennacherib, who was now the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, a talent was about 75 pounds. Okay? Uh, you, you get varying sizes. You know, you can get it up to 120, but generally speaking, I found it 75 is a, a good number to use. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Now, you remember, there was a whole lot of, of things that came in when the people started serving the Lord and came into Hezekiah. It took him months to count all that stuff. Well, it looks like most of that is going elsewhere, some of it probably. Verse 16, And at that time Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, and from the doorpost that Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid, and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, and the Rabsaris, and the Rabshekah, with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. 
Then they went up and came to Jerusalem. Now you got to remember, earlier in verse 13, they had already taken the other cities of, Jeru of, of Judah. So they're coming now to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So that's the state. You know, Hezekiah gave them all this tribute, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold taken from the king's treasury. He defaced the doors of the temple, which just recently, you know, a few years before, they had you know, restored the temple, so now some of that was going away. And it was a significant payment that he made to the Assyrians, but that payment didn't keep him at bay. He just said, well, we got this guy wherever we want him. We got all this, this gold and the silver kind of for free. Now let's go get the rest of the stuff. Let's go take them. Because uh, Sennacherib was interested in conquest. Now also taking place at this time, there is an account in 2 Chronicles 32 that is not given in either 2 Kings or in the Isaiah accounts. Because what you're going to see, you can take 2 Kings 18, starting with uh, verse 13, all the way through 2 Kings 19, and lay it against Isaiah 36 and 37, and they're almost exactly the same. There's just a few words different. So, in 2 Chronicles, we read this, in verses 1 to 8 of 2 Chronicles 32. It says, After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. And a great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it he built another wall, and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people, and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city, and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are many more with us than with him. Now, he had a huge army. We know it was in excess of 185,000. Wow. Okay. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, what you have here is a picture of 
the tunnel of Siloam, or what's called Hezekiah's tunnel. And you can visit it today. People do visit it today. And by creating this tunnel and diverting the waters of the Gihon Springs, Hezekiah prevented the Assyrians, or anybody else that would come against Jerusalem, from gaining access to their water supply. At first, you know, you might read that and go, oh, they, they made sure they had water. No, what they were doing was making sure that the enemy outside the gate didn't have water. And if you have an army sitting out there, it's kind of important that they have water. And so that's what he was doing. So since the Gihon Spring was already protected by a massive tower and was included within the city's defensive wall system, Jerusalem seems to have been supplied with enough water in case of a siege. They didn't have to worry about water because the Gihon Springs was coming up inside the city, even without that tunnel. But according to uh, the director of the Megalim Institute, the tunnel can be, can be interpreted as an additional aqueduct designed for keeping the entire outflow of the spring inside the walled area which included the downstream pool of Siloam. Now remember, when Jesus was around, the guy was going to go jump in the pool of Siloam. That's the same pool. But the specific purpose was to withhold water from any besieging forces. Both the spring itself and the pool at the end of the tunnel would have been used by the people of Jerusalem as their water source. And troops outside... Jerusalem would have not been able to reach any of it. They had to be inside the city. So that was the purpose. And you can go, like I said, you can go visit that thing today. Yes? What fascinated me was they had a crew at Siloam, a crew at the spring, tunneling toward each other 2,500 years ago. Yeah. Below ground. Yes. No equipment to measure the depth. What they did, what they did, and he's exactly right. They started a crew at, at the Gihon Springs. They started a crew at the Pool of Siloam uh, 530 yards apart. Hmm. About a third of a mile. Yep, 530 yards. And they went this way. And there was an elevation change. And they hit it straight on when they hit yeah, missed each other from side to side, or yeah. So and they didn't have any computers. And they didn't have any GPS or underground GPS. I mean, they hit it. These these guys were smart people, you know, cutting through rock. Boom. Yeah. You know, you can go and Google on how they built that. It's pretty it's pretty incredible, pretty incredible. And. Uh, and they did it. And we could have fun talking about that, but we need to get going because <laughs> this might take this week and next week to finish it all because there's a lot here. But that's okay. We'll go as fast as we need to go. Now, at this time, Sennacherib sent the Rabshakeh to Jerusalem. Now, depending on the version you have, it might just say Rabshakeh, or it might say the Rabshakeh. But Rabshakeh, we under, need to understand, is not 
the name of the guy. It's a title of a military official. So he sent a captain or a lieutenant. I don't know what the Rab Shekha did, but it was a title. And so we read on here and we see in verse 18 at the very end of, of what we read in Second Kings 18 it says when they called for the king there came out this envoy that Hezekiah sent he sent Eliakim Shebna and Joah to go and listen to what was being said to them so they were three officials for Hezekiah. Then starting in verse 19 of 2 Kings 18, we see the message that Sennacherib was sending to Hezekiah through the Rabshakeh. Okay? And Hezekiah was not personally listening to it. His envoy of three people were listening to it. And we will see that not only was his envoy listening to it, a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem heard it as well. Verse 19, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to part, and to set, able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. That's quite a message. First of all, it's rude. The message is from a diplomatic standpoint, it's rude. He does, does not acknowledge Hezekiah as the king of Israel. It says, go say to Hezekiah, Okay. He has no problem referring to Sennacherib as the great king, the king of Assyria. We see that in verse 19. And it also ridicules Egypt in verse 21, implying that Egypt is too weak to be of help. It's just a, a broken reed. Well, we know that reeds don't have a whole lot of power. You wouldn't take one of those and have it be your sword. So it's very rude. And the second thing we see, that he gives his opinion that Judah's attempts are merely words. And their confidence in vain is that it is just words. And really, the Rabshakeh was right 
if it was not if it was words without the help of God. He then states that placing their trust in Egypt, in effect, is a rebellion against Assyria. Because they're going to they were going to Egypt for help, and you're not supposed to do that. So Judah was in a precarious position. They inflamed Assyria with their dealings with Egypt, and somehow the Assyrians knew that they had done that. How? We don't know. But they knew that they had done that. Maybe they captured one of the guys that went down to Egypt to try to do it. I have no idea. Maybe they had spies in Egypt. We don't know. If you wrote a, if you wrote a, a movie script, you could have fun with that part of it. But it would all be speculative. The next thing we see in verse 21 is that he ridicules any faith that Judah or Hezekiah would place on God. Stating that placing faith on God is as worthless as any agreement they had made with Egypt. He uses the analogy of, e- of Egypt being a crushed or broken reed because there's, there's a lot of gre- reeds that grew in Egypt. And he uses the analogy that the reed can't support someone. When you lean on it, it'll just pierce your hand. It'll hurt you. So you can't trust that alliance. And in verse 21, he again states that they have rebelled against Assyria. And then he turns his attention in verse 22 to Judah's God. He shows that they knew, this is interesting to me, he shows that he knew of the religious reforms that Hezekiah had done. You have removed the high places. You called men to worship before the altar of God in Jerusalem. They knew of that. But he didn't understand that that was pleasing to God. They they looked at that as a sign of weakness. Instead, the Rabshakeh implies that this isn't going to help you. This is going to hurt you. No, it's going to help you because you were following God's direction. And then in verse 23 to 25... He brings his argument to a conclusion and he asks them to strike a bargain or exchange pledges. It's interesting that he says, hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses. This is what the people of Judah were placing their trust in earlier. If we go back, we can read this in Isaiah chapter 30 and chapter 31. They thought if I'd add the horses from Egypt, it would help. So he was mocking them by saying, I'll give you all the horses you want that you were trying to get from Egypt. I'll give them to you. But I don't really care because they're not going to be of any help to you. You probably can't even get riders for them. So what you are doing is futile. And then in verse 25... In verse 25, the comment also ridicules God as well as the nation of Judah by stating that the Assyrians now have God's direction or God's approval to come and destroy Judah. The Lord said to me, that's what the Rabshakeh is saying, 
go up against this land and destroy it. Of course, this we know that wasn't based on any direction that God had given them. He's just he's just piling on, trying to trying to uh, just break their will. Now I was thinking about that. They came and said, "You know, the, the Lord has told me to go up against this land and destroy it." I haven't gone to, on too many side trips yet this morning, so we're going to go on one right now, but it won't be long. Here we see an example of those who claim to have either heard from God or to speak for God and to use that claim against others to establish their own gain or their own agenda. We see it all the times in the cults and isms. The sad part is that multiplied millions listen to those words and follow it without checking these claims against prior revelations from God. Anybody that would hear the Rabshakeh would know that that wasn't a true claim. But do you think some people said, well, maybe, maybe he did. You know, we need to check claims. Always check claims made by those who claim to have heard from God. How do you check it? You check it with the scripture. No matter how true or untrue it may sound at the time. And we have people today, seems like endless number of them, God told me this. God told me this. I went to heaven and God told me this. Check those against scripture. Because 99.9999% and the only other 0.0001% um, you haven't heard of probably they're false check them against scripture this is what the people did in Acts 17.11 they searched the scriptures to check the claims of Paul and Silas merely accepting anyone's teaching without validation is folly but people do it today it sounds so good on TV you know Oh, yeah, the guy is passionate. He, no, check, check. Because the guy is just as as, as uh, much deceived or lying. I think in many cases they're deceived um, as the Rabshakeh was wrong. No, God did not tell Assyria to go up and destroy Jerusalem. Now, beginning in verse 26, the Rabshakeh proclaims their purpose. Which is to take Jerusalem. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah with, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? So the envoys... Asked the Rabshakeh, 
hey, talk to us in Aramaic. Because all these people that live in Jerusalem, they don't know Aramaic. We know it. It's interesting. That means to me that the Rabshakeh knew probably three languages anyway. He knew Jewish, he knew Aramaic, and he knew whatever they spoke in Assyria. But the reason for this directive is that the Rabshakeh had been using this language to invoke fear and terror in the people so they could understand what he's saying. And he wasn't going to stop doing that. So he quickly responded with disdain to this request in verse 27. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed? And then as he's staying that, he, he even goes further to say what they're doomed to do. We're going to seed you and you're not going to have anything to eat or drink and you're going to be resorting to base living. So it's the, he says the cruelest type of famine and hardship will overtake them. And he speaks with assurance like, this is going to happen, guys. Of course, he doesn't know that Assyria was opposing not Jerusalem, but God. And that changes everything. And his psychology is clearly seen. When hardships come, now, when the hardships come, who will the people blame for their, state, their, their, their condition? Will they blame Sennacherib? No, they're going to blame Hezekiah for not listening to Sennacherib. So he's trying to turn the people against Hezekiah with you know, stating it that way. So that's going to further weaken the resolve of the nation. Then verse 28. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So he's going to turn up the volume. He's going to make sure they hear it. Okay, He's doing just the opposite of what they asked. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. So he addresses all the people now. That's just like saying sick them. You know, so he went after them. Again, it's a humiliation to the leaders. It's a, humil- a humiliation to the, their leaders. He lowers the Almighty God into a God like that of the other nations that they had already conquered. Remember, many at that time, it was very, very much thought and in practice, many equated military conquest to the power of the God of that region or that nation or that city. And if that were the case, then the Rabshakeh said, well, this Hebrew God isn't any different than anybody else. He has no power. That's what he thought. And that's, you know, thinking through that, um, 
I got thinking that what what the what the what it looked like to the people of the city and what it looked like to the people of Assyria. They thought this is a this is a slam dunk. This is a simple deal here. That's similar to how we think today. It's tough not to see things just in the present. You know, whoever wins the stupid bowl next week, I mean the Super Bowl. You'll think, that team is on top. How are they ever going to come back down? They're the best. And you think, oh, that's going to stay that way. Well, no, it won't. Businesses. I was just watching this week. Uh, you know, I spent my career in the, in the grocery industry. I just watched this week a little 15, 10-minute uh, YouTube thing on grocery chains that have failed, and you don't even know about them anymore. Some of them might heard of. You know, sometimes some, some of them were at the top of their game. Probably the one that was the most top of the game that they didn't have in that video was A and P. A and P at one time was the absolute dominant force in the grocery industry. And you think, well, they're going to be there forever? Uh, no, they're not. They're gone. Political parties. Whoever's who's ever on top now, we think, well, how is the other party ever going to gain control? They do. The philosophies of thought or even false religious teachings that are in the top of their game. They're viewed as undefeatable. But these conditions are only temporary. Assyria thought they were undefeatable. They were the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Up to that time, they, they had the most powerful army. They had the biggest. They, they were on the top of their game. But, you know, God's going to eventually come and establish his kingdom. And all those powers that men had, the man-made establishments that seem to be on top, they won't be because all will come under the power and control of God. It's hard not to see that. You know, because we think that's the way it is. It's been, it's been that way for a long time and we think it's going to continue. No, God's in control. And we can praise him for that. Because if he wasn't, it could be rather defeating. Now in verse 29 and verse 30, the Rabshakeh is speaking for Sennacherib the king, and he directly commands the people not to listen to God. He states that listening to Hezekiah was folly and listening to God was folly. His statements are an attempt to cause the people to reject Hezekiah's leading, to think nothing can save them. He wants the people to give up out of fear. You know, sometimes in the heat of battle, the heat of our life, we listen and sometimes hearken to evil counsel. And when we do, we always find ourselves in a position that is much worse than if we would have stayed the course and hearkened to the commands of God. I am convinced that the problem with Christians is not a lack of knowledge of the commands of God. It's the lack of following those commands that we have been given. The people heard the command of the Rabshakeh. 
Don't listen. Don't listen. Don't follow Hezekiah. But they did not follow that. Each time we study and listen to the word of God being proclaimed, guess what? We are increasing our responsibility to actively follow his teachings. But we are also increasing our trust and our knowledge of God's word and his spirits leading in our lives, enabling enabling us to follow what we are learning in giving us the fruits of the Spirit, which are joy, love, peace, long-suffering, and those things. So it's worth it. But every time we study and listen to the Word of God, we have that responsibility to do that. So verse 31, the Rabshakeh says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one will eat of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. He's making it sound so nice. Until I come and take you away. Ooh, there's, whoops, something's going to happen. But it's all going to be good. Trust me. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. So he's promising, oh, come out to me. Come on. I'm going to give you all this. If you don't, you're going to eat your own dung and drink your own urine, and it's all on you. That's what he's saying. So he promises people this much easier path. I'm going to give you food and water. And then we're going to take you to this great land that you're going to love. I'm going to give you food and water. I'm going to take you to a land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards. So you, you just come out peacefully and there's going to be a return to normal life. And... That, that, that appeals, you know, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's a picture of the promises of the temptation of sin. And we have that in our lives. The temptation of sin causes us to lose trust in God's promises. After all the army of the enemy is at the gates, and sin promises new grain and new wine, and bread and vineyard. And far too often, when we succumb to the claims that temptation is making, we realize later that those promises were false and those promises were empty. God has promised to deliver us from all temptation, stating that as we do, we will have the victorious Christian life. And I am confident. I mean, supremely confident that if the people had surrendered to the Assyrians and said, oh man, that sounds good. Let's go, guys. The treatment would have been a whole lot worse than what the Rabshakeh promised. It would have been a lot worse. Remember how they used to take people from one part to another by putting, piercing their lips and taking them off like slaves? 
Nations did not conquer other nations to give people a better life. Okay? That's not why they did it. And then he goes on the last half of verse 32. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? king of Assyria is undefeated, folks. Just saying, he's pretty powerful. Then he goes on, and here's, here's we see, uh, you know, that they, that they have no more respect for the God of Israel than they do the gods of any of these other nations. Verse 34, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Shepharim, Hina, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Your God isn't any better than anybody else. That's what he's saying. So again, he tells people not to listen to their king. That they are being, Hezekiah is misleading you. He is deceiving you. All these other gods were worthless. Your gods are not going to be any different. It's interesting, you know, Assyria has, has, has defeated all these other lands. So they're going to defeat you. It's a very pragmatic approach to spiritual truth. If something seems to work, it must be true or the best way to act. The fact that Assyria has, beat, has won all these battles proves that our God is superior to your God. And I got thinking about that, and this is maybe a big stretch, but we need not to approach truth from a pragmatic standpoint. If it works, it's right. And many churches approach how they do their work in that manner. If it works, it's right. And I'm thinking um, uh, their service format in many churches. If I have the fog and the lights and the fancy music, people are going to come. And they're going to like it. There are going to be thousands come to this church to do something like that. So it must be the way we should go. Our society acts in this manner. If a majority say that people can be married between any two or more people of any gender, it must be right and true. We could add a whole lot of examples, but basing spiritual truth on what is the current, I'll call it flavor of the month, is a recipe for sin and ultimate failure. So the people of Israel need not to say, well, just because you beat them doesn't mean that that makes that true. We need to make sure that we don't do the same thing. It's easy to fall into that trap. Sometimes just a little at a time, but boom, sometimes it is a recipe for failure. But then I love verse 36. I love the response of the people. But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. 
Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So the people didn't respond. Quiet. All that stuff, they were silent. And sometimes silence is a good response to evil commands. The speech did not have its desired effect. And I would think, we don't have it said, but I would think that that would anger the Rabshakeh. He would be ticked. I don't think he, could, he thought that would be the case. And I bet he was thinking all the way back to Sennacherib, how am I going to tell him that nothing happened? That it was quiet. How am I going to present this to my great king. But in verse, uh, uh, what was it? Oh yeah, verse uh, 37, Hezekiah's envoy returned and reported to what had happened. But how did they report? They reported in humility and mourning with their clothes torn. No one else tore them. They tore them themselves. Their God had been publicly blasphemed and they responded accordingly. They responded in mourning. It was public and it was humiliation. I got thinking, how do we respond today when our God is blasphemed all over the place? Do we mourn before him? Or do we respond at all? And then I ask myself, how should I respond? And I don't know if I have great answers to that question. But you see God blasphemed everywhere by non-religious people, even by people who claim to be religious people. We may need to closely review this, especially in America with the mindset and the culture we have. You know, we are a proud people. Too proud. We are taught to be proud. We are taught to have a good self-image. And while having a good self-image has some validity with respect to others, towards God, no, not so much. Our attitude must be different. The humility and the willingness to express humility in mourning before God in an appropriate manner is, is a good thing. And then we go to chapter 19. Told you I wasn't going to get all the way through this. But we'll get as far as we need to get and then we'll continue next week. And as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he basically did the same thing. He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah. I told you last week, Isaiah comes into this whole thing. The son of Amos. And they said to him, which is Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. 
Children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, had sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that your Lord God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So on hearing this message, Hezekiah responds in prayer. He shows humility. He shows contriteness of heart. And he shows penitence. He also requests the counsel of Isaiah. So he may learn what God would have them do in this situation. So we know that Isaiah was revered and respected by the king because Isaiah was a prophet of God. I can't help but compare that with national and local leaders today. When When a crisis comes, they don't turn to a spiritual leader for counsel. They turn to their cabinets, to their legislative leaders, to their military leaders, The last place they think on turning to is God. The spiritual element is ignored because they do not see the unfolding of events as something that God played a part in. Now, if we have a big hurricane that comes through and wipes out a whole bunch of... Do you think God played a part in that? Absolutely he did. But no one turns to him or any other crisis. Instead... God is viewed as this great benefactor who is not involved in the daily affairs of men or accessible. So no wonder decisions that leaders make are wrong. They're going to the wrong source for an answer. If leaders only turn to other men for counsel and none of them seek direction from God, they lack divine wisdom and perspective. Hezekiah didn't do that. He went to Isaiah, who he knew was a prophet of God. Not a false prophet, but a true prophet of God. And he accurately describes the day in verse 3, one of anguish and distress. He refers to the rebuke of God by the Reb Shekah. You know, Judah had nowhere to turn but to God. He compares the situation... In uh, verse uh, 3. Verse 3, he compares the situation to a pregnant woman who is about to give birth to a child who is breached. She needs help and assistance and is in extreme distress. And if doesn't get help or assistance, she won't survive. That's what that's referring to. We need your help or we won't survive. You know, we're so much like Hezekiah and the people of Judah. Often we don't turn to God except for a last resort. You know, earlier they tried to go to Egypt and get some help. Shouldn't have done that. Should have gone to God a long time before. But at least he got there. But now they can turn nowhere else. How much better for us if we turn to God from the beginning. The amazing thing is that God will still respond to a contrite heart, even if it's 
at the very end where we should have done earlier. God will still respond. You know, I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son found in Luke 15, 11 to 32. I mean, he responded to God when, you know, in this story, he went back to his father when basically all was lost. He had made a mess. He had sinned. He had done all kinds of stuff. I'm going to go back to my father and ask to be a servant. And the willingness of God to respond when there's no one else to turn, he will respond. That's incredible. That's incredible. You know, countless people have come to Christ in similar circumstances where all else has failed. There is nowhere to go but God, but he doesn't turn them away. And that's what we see here. There is a complete acknowledgement that God's help is required. And unless he renders aid, the nation's done for. Earlier, we asked the question about the proper way to respond in mourning to God. How should we respond today in mourning? And this passage gives us a little insight. Hezekiah responded with great humility and total reliance upon God. He sought God's prophet and he listened to his response. So we should do likewise. The way to seek God's prophet is to go to the Bible, to go to him in prayer. And we have much more access to his direction than Hezekiah did. Hezekiah could go to Isaiah. We have whole completed canon after that and where needed we can go to godly people for counsel and all of this is done in humility with a contrite heart ready to act upon the direction we were given and I was writing this and I got thinking about people I have talked to who do biblical counseling the people come to them for help and we have a a group of eight people in this church that do that that are either accredited or about to finish their accreditation in biblical counseling. And you know what? Often, probably well more than 50% of the time, their efforts fail. I can tell you, I don't know many details about, I don't know, how, most 90% of the people they talk to, I don't even know about. That's the way it should be. But I know of a couple, and they have failed. Many of them have failed miserably, I guess you might say. Why? The people are given counsel from God on what to do, but a high percentage of them don't want to do that counsel that they've been given. And it's biblical counsel. They say, this is what the Bible says. But instead they look for help elsewhere because they did not like the answers they were given they had some reason or some excuse for not following God's direction and guess what when they didn't follow God's direction their problem doesn't go away and didn't go away I know a lot of people oh we we need help in our marriage and they counsel and counsel and counsel and two years later they get divorced why? Because they didn't follow the counsel. And then they blame the counselors 
for not giving them the answers. The answers are there. We need to be like Hezekiah. We need to look to God for counsel, and then we must listen and act on what we learn. What if Isaiah would have said, here's what I want you to do, and he's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not doing that, Isaiah. I'm going somewhere else. Now, that didn't happen, but that's what happens today. A lot of counselees keep looking elsewhere for a different answer because they want this answer over here. And if it doesn't come to that answer, well, I'm going to go till I find it. That's not how we can approach God's word. That's another side trip. Okay, I'm through with that one. Although I've been through this whole thing thinking about if we raise our families the way God uh, teaches us to do, the family's a solid structure. But when we listen to all this other stuff, family can go just helter skelter. Oh yeah, there's there's all kinds of there's all kinds of application. Application. There's all kinds of of things that are bombarding us that are not biblical. And the more we can avoid those things, absolutely the better it's going to be. And then in verse 30, verse 4, we'll have just a couple of minutes, then we'll have to stop. <clears throat> Hope is expressed in what Hezekiah is saying. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. One of the truly great and remarkable things about God is that he has a desire and a willingness to forgive. Even after our sinful, our bonehead actions. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an incredible verse. The incredibly deep and profound love of God is constantly demonstrated in our lives with his forgiveness of our sins. And I, Hezekiah recognized Isaiah, or recognized to Isaiah the living, God, the living God. And it is his hope that God will rebuke and punish Assyria for their words of blasphemy and their attack upon Judah. Why? Because God was mocked. God was blasphemed and then in verse <clears throat> verse 5 and we'll stop here when the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah Isaiah responded Isaiah said to them say to your master thus says the Lord do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And we can stop right there for today, but Isaiah's response is authoritative and it's encouraging. And the response given by Isaiah is from God. 
and it shows that God heard everything that the Rabshakeh said. And God is going to act. And we're going to go through that and the rest of this next week. And it'll probably take pretty much most the time next week. But you can read ahead and see what is going to happen. Yes? As you were going through this, I remember Rabbi Shekhar explaining that the God of Israel, Jesus, made him direction to uh-huh. take to Jerusalem. Do you think he was the inventor of gaslighting? <laughs> Do I think the Rabbi Shekhar was the inventor yeah, of gaslighting? I think Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, well, and, we can talk about a lot of people that do that all yeah, the time. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of people in leadership that are doing that right now. They lie constantly, and after a while, you start believing it because you do it all the time. Everybody's repeating that lie. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the definition of gaslighting. Yeah. Where people just lie repeatedly with confidence. Yep. The original. The original in the garden. Yeah. You shall be like God. Yeah, very interesting story, and we're not through with it. Let's pray, shall we?